Hello, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about books and books and more books. My name is Thomas Magby. I am joined, as always, by Mr. A.J. Hannenberg. That's me. And Mr. Graham Donaldson. Hello. All right, and today we're going to take a little, um, you know, jump off the track. We're going to go for something a little different than normal. We're going to be talking about some of our favorite movies. So I think we're starting off with, um, A.J., this surprised me as your first pick, uh, the 1975 classic, uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. It's um, great. It has uh, Denny DeVito. Yeah, sure. Are you uh, serious? I'm dead serious. It? And uh, what's his name? The guy that was the first Joker. Uh, oh, Jack Nicholson. He's got Jack Nicholson. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's how you remember Jack Nicholson. Yeah, gonna, the first that, Joker of all of all of his. How roles. do you remember him? He was in The Shining. Shining. Yeah, that's what I would say too. Sorry about that. Fair enough. Okay, I, I stand corrected. Uh, so uh, we're gonna have a one-hour podcast on a two-hour movie. So this seems about right. So uh, take it away. I feel judged. Uh, so <laughs> you're not, you're also not actually talking about the movie. So I'm not, I'm talking, I'm yeah. talking about the book. This right. isn't about the movie, but I am doing one flew over the cuckoo's nest by Ken Kesey. And I, I got caught a little, uh, a little flack from my co-hosts here about it not being classical. So here's my argument for its classicity. Um, it might not be, it's a little bit modern Is classicity a word that feels made up Classicfulness. Okay. Thank you. That's much better. So it's, it's from the early sixties. Uh, and, You'll it'll become clear why it's important in the history of the United States. And I'm not sure if it like we don't know if it's going to last for the next two, three hundred years. But as far as being a cultural touch point for the United States, it is certainly that. And so understanding how we got to where we are and what sorts of things influence that uh, this is an important book in the development of this country. Sure. I mean, the other part that's funny is that Graham was the one who raised that concern, and I believe he had two episodes on a book from the 90s, so... Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) but it's a guy talking about the Bible. Yeah, sure. We're just very loose with this uh, definition of classical anyway. Yeah, we're playing fast and loose, and I've always always felt that this podcast was a little bit Wild West, so... Uh, in, we talk in about regard, and that we end <laughs> in, in, in a, almost no regard. We end in a gunfight every time. I don't yeah, understand. We're super okay, stodgy. Great. Okay, so I, I'm going to do this book, and I'm going to kind of develop it in in episodes. And the first episode is going to be me reading one star reviews from Amazon oh. about one flew over the cuckoo's nest. What a wow! This is a new hobby that I like to do mm-hmm. for both my students and my great books class for parents. So, like when you start reading the Iliad with your students, you'll pull up one. Star I will reviews pull of up Iliad. one star Amazon reviews. It is a fantastically fun. It's a fantastic practice to do before you read any classic. Sure. I can't. I just can't comprehend leaving a one star review for Homer. Like I just. Uh, yeah, I can't. I can't comprehend that. Uh, you are welcome to look up Iliad reviews if Maybe. you'd like. In the meantime, yeah. but here's here's a couple of my favorites. I've seen better crap in my cat's litter box. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> There's one that just said, "Stupid." Okay. <laughs> There's one that says, "Good book, but I guess it's not for me." Kept falling asleep multiple times, especially towards the end. I prefer bre- reading Brave New World, oh. which. In no way is a book connected to this one. Sure. It, they're not it, even both dystopias. Is it a better book? No. Oh, okay. There you go. I would actually... I, I'm Shots fired, Huxley. I might actually go out on a limb and say this one is a better book. Okay. Uh, it's The prose is better written. Okay. I think the writing is better than that of Huxley. Okay. I'm not sure if it's a better conceived book, but it, I, I like the writing better. And let's see. Here's a, Here's a few more. I very, very rarely ever rate something at one star. So when I do, it means something. This was absolutely terrible. Let's see. People can read into the symbolism if they want, but it seems merely a glorification of every type of ism, racism, sexism, etc., as well as, quote, bucking the system, end quote. It's a justification for those things? I, yes, I guess. Is that... 
I'm nervous we'll, about this book. We'll get there. Yeah. The narrator is not very reliable, so you don't often know if you're hearing the right story or if he's hallucinating. Isn't that like the point of the book? Not really. Yeah, it's in it's the, actually in the, in the movie, very kind of a, easy to yeah. figure out if he's hallucinating or not. It's okay. it's pretty straightforward. And one of my favorites. I can't. I really can't believe they make high schooler students read this kind of crap. Okay. There's. Yeah. <laughs> For the record, we don't make our high schoolers read Brave One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It's no. not on our curriculum. Correct. We do make them read Brave New World. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to I'm going to skip ahead to talking about our writer. So this is Ken Kesey. And if you've ever read the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test or Nope. Uh it's it's by Tom Wolfe and it is about this particular point in history that Ken Kesey is involved in. And Ken Kesey was born September 7th. The, the, the wacky drug go across America on a bus well, generation. Yeah. Hey, spoilers, man. No, sorry. <laughs> so he, he was born in 1935 and he lived until 2001. And he was born in Colorado to dairy farmers. Uh, in 1946, at the age of 11, they moved to Springfield, Oregon. In high school, he was a championship wrestler and in college as well. He's still one of the most winning college wrestlers in hmm. Oregon. Impressive. And he was going to be on the Olympic team, except a serious shoulder injury sort of stopped his wrestling career. He was an avid reader, an avid film go- goer. He took John Wayne and Edgar Rice Burroughs and Zane Gray as his role models. He toyed with magic, ventriloquism, hypnotism. He was a weird guy, okay. right? And at, in 1956, at 21 years old, he eloped with his high school sque- sweetheart, Sweetheart, yeah, sweetheart, sweetheart, sweetheart. Yeah. <laughs> sweetheart. Yeah. Norma Faye Haxby, whom he had met in seventh grade, and they stayed married as far as I know until his, like his death. Right? They were lifelong partners, although sometimes it was more of an open marriage than a closed marriage. Uh, we may get to that in the future. Okay. And he, she was sort of his anchor, his yourself. his touch point. Right? He was. He was, as you'll as you'll see later, sort of the harbinger of the drug fueled period of the '60s, and so he had a lot of opportunity for extramarital affairs, which he engaged in a few, but he would have totally lost himself to it without Faye as an anchor and touch point. Right? He was that influential to be a harbinger of all that in the '60s. Oh yes, okay. and I will. I will sort of elucidate. Okay. We're, we're not quite there yet. Okay. In college, uh, he originally had a football scholarship, but eventually switched to wrestling, and. He got his bachelor's in speech communication, uh, but he was eventually getting bored by playwriting and screenwriting. So he stuttered under a guy named James B. Hall, who sort of cultivated his interest in modern literature. And after a few tries as a struggling actor in L.A., he published a short story and successfully applied to the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship at Stanford. And so he studied creative writing at Stanford and he... His his fellowship was kind of complicated. He wasn't really allowed to work towards a master's. Mm. So he just sort of studied in the non-degree program at Stanford's Creative Writing Center. He lived in a place called Perry Lane, which is a, at, at the time, was a really famous sort of bohemian enclave at Stanford. It was, it was all where the smart kids went, all the writers and the promising philosophers. And they all lived in this one spot and drank a lot. And it was near the golf course. And they sort of a lot of major thinkers came out of that little area. And that's where he lived. And he he and his wife were sort of the farmers of the group like you had the intelligentsia and the elite and right. he was the guy that had you know like a busted washing machine sitting on his deck for two weeks you know he's he was a little bit messier did you call him a farmer uh, that's kind of how he came across oh. right he's sort of like a good hometown boy that he's not as like refined as these other people i mean he, he was born to dairy farmers right? right yeah he's not quite as refined okay. um and he is actually not really a favorite 
with the people that are running his the Stanford Creative Writing Program, he free, frequently clashed with the center's director, who thought him a highly talented illiterate and rejected his application for the Stegner Fellowship, but permitted him to attend as a Woodrow Wilson Fellow. Um, when that guy, the head guy, left, uh, he told everyone that he had gotten permission to audit a bunch of classes and just sort of lied and then right. audited a bunch of classes under this imaginary permission he had gotten from the director when the director was gone. Uh, and he, at the period time, was writing a novel in progress that was awesome and it was great. So during this time, while he's studying creative writing, he also, and, th- and this is where his importance kind of begins, he was part of the CIA-financed study called M Project MK Ultra. Have you guys ever heard of it? Mm-hmm. No. Okay, Graham, what do you know about MK Ultra? It's the LSD project. Oh. Okay, so what, what do you know what the goals were and what they were trying to do? Um, they wanted to basically test the use of LSD on people, um, I think, as a weapon. So either like as a weapon for uh, against the Russians or as to see if it actually gave somebody some kind of like Mind special control? insights or mind yeah is was this it? is this real mm-hmm. okay. yeah look up mk ultra it's That's bananas it's yeah. really crazy it, it's mind mind control is that That's it? what this says yeah, yeah. seems kind it of had somebody, yeah it was basically like testing lsd to see if they could use it to for the military for the military yeah all right so they're giving all these people all these drugs so he is one of the test subjects in mk ultra so he was one of the first few people to really try out this whole lsd thing right they tried lsd um let's see where's my little list here LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, cocaine, AMT, and DMT. And during that time, he was also working in the hospital where this thing was going on and interacting with a lot of the people who were insane there. And this little period of both experimentation and work would eventually lead to his novel, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And so it's, it's weird that we actually have records of his his sort of vocal experiments and what he was saying while they were experimenting on him and it was weird yeah and if you are interested in any of that there's actually a what do you call that a a documentary on amazon about him and his bus trip that i will tell you about right now i guess (laughs) um so the results of that study are public though that's a thing that's already been declassified i mean I guess. Okay. Just cause we know about it is the evidence. Okay. Yeah. Parts of it are declassified. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. So he, the, eventually, um, Perry Lane was torn down and he moved to a different cabin and he decided to take sort of a sightseeing trip with his wife. And it sort of snowballed into this giant bus trip to the world's fair across the country. Cool. And he got a whole bunch of people together and called them his merry pranksters. And they painted the name of the bus called further and then painted the bus like six times. And so it had six different layers of paint on it and it was driven by Neil Cassidy. You guys ever heard of him? You ever read On the Road by Jack Kerouac? Mm-hmm. Yes. He's, he's a character. Oh. I think they call him Dean Moriarty in the, in the mm. On the Road novel. But okay. same guy, Neil Cassidy. And he was sort of a weird character. He talked a mile a minute and he was the bus driver. And he mostly could drive the bus all the time and talk a mile a minute because he was on speed. Right. So they, they get in this bus and they start to go on this bus trip. And it is supposed to be, as far as Kesey is concerned, sort of a, a trip into enlightenment. By this time, Kesey has written One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He wrote it shortly after his creative writing stuff and the experiments. And so the way the reason he can do this is because he's got sort of a, 
a fancy writing career going on and he has enough money to sort of fuel his experimentation. And so he becomes the head guru of this magical bus trip that would later become the inspiration for the Beatles magical mystery Uh, tour. You know, the one where they do the bus. That is what they were imitating was Ken Kesey, Neil Cassidy and his band of merry pranksters as they traveled to the world's fair and experimented with LSD. This is, this is weird, right? It sounds like he's starting a cult or something. Kind of. Yeah. Well, he wanted to push the boundaries of human perception, right? He had experimented with LSD. He Uh thought it was enlightening. They tried to make contact with a few other people that were also experimenting with LSD. Those never re- went very well. And it for those of you who are like, yes, push the boundaries. It sounds idyllic, but there was a lot of weird relationship stuff happening. He was married to his wife, but then he had a, had you know with her approval had some extramarital affairs with a woman named Mountain Girl, and then he had a kid by her. They named Sunshine that would later get raised by her and Jerry Garcia, the head guy from. What's the Grateful Grateful Dead, Dead. who they were closely involved with. They would run things called acid tests where they brought everybody over, would paint things and play music. And like he was just he was at the very forefront of the acid movement of the 60s. They actually on this bus trip were the people who invented tie dye. They did it on accident when their bus broke down. They were playing with paints. They dipped a guy's shirt in it. The guy was really mad because it was a nice clean T-shirt. And he's like, you guys just screwed up my T-shirt. I'm totally hacked with you. And. But it was kind of terrible. People right. got jealous of each other. When you are so free in your love, sometimes that doesn't quite work out with everybody. And so some people actually had psychotic breaks on the trip and would leave. But Kesey didn't. He, correct? Did Kesey he? didn't. Okay. Kesey sort he's of... He's having a positive time. He's enjoying all this. He was the guru that ran everything, yep. right? He would set up the times when they would all get together and do drugs. And he was the guy that was encouraging the filming of everything and would have these ideas for what they could film. And after they were done, the goal was to set up this film that they could show everybody. And he tried to cut together 40 hours mm-hmm. that they could make into a movie. And he, they never really successfully did it. Amazon has taken a lot of that footage and put it into their documentary about the subject but eventually he would go home and he got arrested for possession of marijuana in 1965 and faked his suicide and fled to mexico and then came back about eight months later was arrested by the fbi (laughs) sentenced to six months and then after he got out um, he was arrested again eventually after serving his time and sort of getting out of the scene uh, you know at, at a certain point you get tired of it and right. people had been coming over his, to his house so much eventually they just put a big sign on the lawn that just said no <laughs> just go away we right. don't want any more people here doing drugs because it was snowballing and snowballing into the movement of the 60s right. and at that point he can't control it anymore and he's kind of tired of the whole scene so he retreats to Oregon Has he? you said he'd written the book has he published the book by this yeah, point? yeah I mean he's he is a pretty famous writer at this point he's okay. published two two books I haven't read the second one uh, and this one is famous and I think the movie has already come out by the time he is sort of re- retreating if I'm right the one flew over the cuckoo's nest movie? Uh, I forget when that came out that came out maybe 10 years later 75 yeah so 10 or 15 years after he published the book and then he, he will continue to write short stories and teach classes on creative writing. Yep. In 1984, his son, uh, Jed, a wrestler, suffered a head injury when his team's van crashed and they like didn't have seatbelts. It was a really poorly put together van. And so he got mad and started bringing it up to like he donated his own money to buy the team a van. And then he started suing. I think he sued the state because of the conditions of the van for his high school, which makes sense. He was diagnosed with diabetes in 1992 and in 94. He toured with some of the members of the Merry Pranksters um, to perform a musical that he wrote. He even got Allen Ginsberg to perform with them. Like the, all these guys, you know, Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac. They actually met Jack Kerouac really? on the bus trip and they yep. found him really boring. Oh. <laughs> 
And because at this point he was kind of burnt out and right. he had, he had already been famous. He didn't really care what they were doing. And Ginsburg was actually on the bus for a little while mm-hmm. and he got connected with it. So it's, it's all connected. Yeah. Right. And Ken Kesey is actually mentioned in Tom Wolf's book. I can't remember if he's mentioned in on the road, but, but they're all kind of together. Right. Right. And from him would come the LSD movement of the sixties. So he's a, he's a big important figure and the cuckoo's nest comes right at the beginning of that. Okay. Right. Does that, does that kind of make sense? You mm-hmm. guys get in the picture of this. You don't follow? find this whole like movement, like frustrating and annoying. How so? I don't know. Yeah, why would you say frustrating? It's just like maybe my I'll, maybe my thoughts will coalesce as we go along. You're just generally grumpy. Well, it's just no, no. It's just the, <laughs> like um, the production of the lionizing of somebody who has producing art. Like just thinking, like Amazon put a documentary together, and I'm just thinking. Their document, I'm just trying to think of how you would market that thing. It's like, oh, you know, travel inside the mind of a man who, like, you know, was so influential in an era. But when you sort of think about what he's done and what he's produced and the ethos that he, that, that what he's done is, is espousing, it's like, I don't want to lionize this. This is, this is, this is not virtue. This isn't the way to live. This isn't how you want your, like, um, I don't know, it's, it's sort of art not married to ethics. In in Amazon's defense, he is not lionized. They oh. they do a pretty fair treatment of what the bus trip was like and interview a whole bunch of people that were on the bus trip and had sometimes had a good time, sometimes had a bad time. Whatever. They made a documentary about it. That's that's a lot. I mean, like even though it shows positive yeah. and negative, it's have. like the same things where it's like when you make a mobster movie, it's like I want to show how mobsters are bad. It's like yeah, well, every kid in college has a Scarface poster. Hmm. Anyway. Hmm. Uh, it, uh, but I'll also be curious. I know this is taking us. Yeah, because but in in the book, will it go into all of this about LSD? Not at all. Yeah, exactly. Because it's more about mental health, isn't it? Yes. So that's. I'm wondering if the book will go in a different direction, Graham, than you're talking it, about. It will for certain. But I I like the documentary yeah. uh, just as a again a cultural touch point, right? It's a, it's a moment in history sure. that that caused a movement that I now understand better because I watched the film and I I think it the the Tom Wolf electric Kool-Aid acid test book sort of does the same thing where it sounds really romantic. And then near the end, the Grateful Dead is playing to an empty bar, basically singing we failed over and over and over again, because the movement that they had envisioned never coalesced. And but uh, the LSD, the LSD pushing the person, you know, the edges of perception kind of failed. Yeah. Um, but I, I do hear what you're saying of even by presenting that story, some people will take that story the wrong way. Just as some people take the, and, and granted it's not the same thing, but Paradise Lost the wrong way. They think Satan is the hero rather than the villain. Yeah, I guess. It's just, you know, Tom Wolfe with his fancy white suits is living it up in New York and uh, Grateful Dead are these cult heroes. And I know there's this whole this whole idea, the, the whole counterculture ethos of the 1960s. And I'm sure this, and this is reflected in the book. It's like you have those that everyone thinks is crazy and then you have society, which is actually... The, the the wicked ones like it's the nurse ratchet who's evil and the crazy people who are the countercultural okay so we're so not anyway, there yet you're giving you're giving yeah, spoilers no, I'm just at this saying point. it's just like but again i'll be curious if the book reaches different conclusions in the movies i just i honestly don't know at this point your point again i i, I think this with tom wolf's bonfire of the vanities right that um the portrayal of financial figures who should be villains become heroes mm-hmm. in, um in it's a, just the same. It's the same frustration uh, I have culture. with with like the Holden Caulfield. Yeah, sure. seeing him as a good guy. Yes, sure. 
Yeah, sure. I can, I can get on board with that. All I don't right. know that I necessarily disagree. All right, so let's go into the cuckoo's nest for the moment. I'm going to read you the dedication because later I'm just going to ask you guys what this means because I'm not sure I've totally figured it out either. But it's to Vic Lovell, who told me dragons did not exist, then led me to their lairs. One flew east, one flew west, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. It's from a children's folk rhyme. I don't, I don't really understand. Graham is looking grumpy over there. It's just, I mean... Because you don't think it means anything why are you mad um because it's it's giving the pretense of of like being insightful when it's just like babble from someone on drugs have you have you read this uh i, th- I think i actually i think i had to read it in high school yes okay well just suspend know, your disbelief <laughs> i think there's some good things to be had here in this book it was certainly a delight to read and i'm just just ungrump for a little okay. while and then you can regrump at the end of the book gotcha. i'm a little worried about two episodes on existentialism and now this i don't you doing okay over there yeah what's yeah seriously i'm doing fine okay good yeah i'm doing good <laughs> I'm, I'm having a great time okay so we at the beginning of the book i'm going to kind of give you just a rundown of the plot and the characters and and then we can talk you know, themes and development afterwards. I'll try to do this as quickly as possible. How, how am I doing on time over there? You're 20 minutes in. Oh, great. Oh, geez. Okay. So we, we first are in for introduced to Randall Patrick McMurphy at the beginning of the book when he comes into an, in mental illness ward that is filled with two different groups of people, the acutes who have problems that can be solved and the chronics who have problems that cannot be solved, right? So there are two different groups. The acutes, they have daily meetings to kind of hash through all their issues and try to help them re-enter society. The chronics sort of lay on beds and are fed and they're the people that are way too far gone and will never be helped, right? They're, they're cooked, right? And so he enters and it turns out he comes from a work farm and it's just because he has sort of a he says it's because he likes to fight and spend time with ladies too much and and that's why he's there and it's also because he's a big gambler and he wants some new he wants some new new people to to fleece and basically it's be, it's better than the work farm where he was at for jail right oh. so he opts to get opts to get transferred and he's kind of fine with the transfer so long as it means four square um or three square meals a day and new people to gamble with so here's here's a little description of our main character he talks a little the way Poppy used to, and the, and the the narrator here is a a Native American named Chief Bromden, who is not deaf and dumb, but everyone thinks he is. He's right. been there for like ten years, and he never speaks, and he never acknowledges when people speak to him, and he just pushes a broom around. And he believes that in the walls there's all this machinery. He is subject to this giant machine called the combine that runs the place, and then the nurse in charge is sort of there their representative at the ward, but their job is to listen on people and control things and use the machinery in the walls and sort of remove the humanity from everyone and keep the machine running. Right. It'll become sort of synonymous with society as the book moves on in the book. Do you know from the beginning that he can hear and that he can speak? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. He gives that away pretty quick. Okay. Okay. So this is him talking about the entrance of Randall Patrick McMurphy. He talks a little way the way, you, the way Poppy used to. Vi- vow, sorry, voice loud and full of heck. I'm going to change some of the swears here. But he doesn't look like Papa. Papa was a full-blooded Colombian Indian, a chief, and hard and shiny as a gunstock. The guy is red-headed with long red sideburns and a tangle of curls out from under his cap. Been needing cut a long time. And he's broad as Papa was tall. Broad across the jaw and shoulders and chest. A broad white devilish grin. And he's hard in a different kind of way from Papa. Kind of the way a baseball is hard under the scuffed leather. A seam runs across his nose and one cheekbone where somebody laid him a good one in a fight and the stitches are still in the seam. 
He stands there waiting, and when nobody makes a move to say anything to him, he commences to laugh. Nobody can tell exactly why he laughs. There's nothing funny going on. But it's not the same way that the public relation person laughs. It's free and loud, and it comes out of his wide grinning mouth and spreads in rings bigger and bigger till he's lapping against the walls all over the ward. Not like that fat, republic, that fat public relation laugh. This sounds real. I realize all of a sudden it's the first laugh I've heard in years. So he comes in and his, Randall Patrick Murphy, whose, whose initials are RPM, right? Revolutions mm-hmm. per minute. Right. Is, he is sort of the archetype of manhood, right? He's loud. He's brash. He loves to fight. He loves the likes ladies. He likes to gamble and smoke and make jokes and wrestle. And he's, he's kind of like, I, I think Kesey was almost writing himself into this book. Oh, he's, okay. he's kind of like Kesey, right? He's a big guy, kind of a wrestler. <laughs> I hate, you're supposed to ungrump till the end of the book. Fine. You can regrump then. I'm writing my notes. That's oh like my goodness. Right now. Yeah. Okay. And then, so after he enters and kind of meets everybody and says, Hey, let's gamble. Let's have some fun gambling. I'm here to take all of your guys's money. They have a meeting where, and at these meetings, the goal is essentially to rehash over everyone's problems. Yes. And nurse ratchet, uh, not spelled like a, a wrench ratchet, but ratchet with an, with a D. Mm. But I mean that you have RPM who gets, right. you know, revved up and then nurse ratchet, who's kind of like cranking down on everybody. Right. So they go to the meetings and she will focus in on someone's problems and talk about their problems. And everyone else is supposed to voice their thoughts on this guy pro- guy's problems. And so it kind of becomes like a big dog pile. Someone yes. else have a problem. Everyone else will pile on top and sort of insult them and ask them questions about it. And it is emasculating. And emasculation is sort of one of the central things that happens in the books. Everyone's dignity, like it, it's taking his biggest fear, pulling it out of him and putting it on display for everyone. And so after that experience, nobody feels good. Right. Right. It's under the guise of it's supposed to be therapy, but it's supposed to be therapy. It doesn't and, actually help anyone. And I can actually read you about why they do it. So I've heard and this is, again, Chief Bromden talking. I've heard that that theory of the therapeutic community enough times to repeat it forwards and backwards, how a guy has to learn to get along in a group before he'll be able to function in a normal society, how the group can help the guy by showing him where he's out of place, how society is what decides who's sane and who isn't. So you got to measure up all that stuff. Every time we get a new patient on the ward, the doctor goes into the theory with both feet. It's pretty near the only time he takes things over and runs the meetings. So there is a doctor, but usually it's the nurse that runs it. He tells how the goal of the therapeutic community is a democratic ward run completely by the patients and their votes, working towards making worthwhile citizens to turn back outside onto the street. Any little gripe, any grievance, anything you want changed, he says, should be brought up before the group and discussed instead of letting it fester inside you. Also, you should feel at ease in your surroundings to the extent you can freely discuss emotional problems in front of patients and staff. Talk, he says. Discuss. Confess. And if you hear a friend say something during the course of your everyday conversation, then list it in the logbook for the staff to see. It's not, as the movies call it, squealing. It's helping your fellow. Bring these old sins into the open where they can be washed by the sight of all and participate in group discussion. Help yourself and your friends probe into the secrets of the subconscious. There should be no need for secrets among friends. So that is the theory that they're all running on. But Randall or McMurphy sort of keys in. He's like, oh, my gosh, this is horrifying. They're. They're stripping you guys of your dignity, right? So he he has this thing. And then he says, look, he starts to gamble with them and says that he doesn't like this nurse and the way that she treats everybody. So he says, I bet I can get under her skin in a couple of weeks. You'll see me, her, her kind of like split at the seams. And here's where we kind of meet the, 
the characters. So we have our main character, Randall Patrick McMurphy. Then we have a guy named Harding, who is clearly an intelligent man. I think he was a professor and he's emasculated by his wife, who is good looking and he feels kind of threatened by her and all the looks she draws from other men. We have a guy named Billy Bibbit, who is sort of controlled by his mother. And we have a guy named Cheswick, who's a big talker, but not big on action. And there's a whole bunch of other patients, but those are sort of the big ones. Chief Bromden and these all I, I picked three guys. Mm-hmm. Right. Aren't each of those. Those, are, those all sound like kind of normal things is. Yeah, I'm just observing that. I don't know if that's a, a point that will be brought up or something. Or if you have a thought on that, it seems strange that they're put into a ward for something. Well, Billy is, I think, 31 years old and still acts like a child and stutters a lot. Mm. Right. It's it's sort of emasculation. I think he is voluntarily on the ward and so is Harding. But we don't know this at this point that they are there voluntarily and that they could leave anytime they want. Right. Right. They feel like and this is where Harding talks about it. He says they feel like rabbits in the world. Right. This is where it is safe. It is easy. They are not threatened by everything that goes on outside. They don't feel a part of society. And so here they feel safe even if that safety is at the mercy of nurse nurse ratchet who like holds the place in an iron fist and sure. loves things to operate to so work on work on time hence the name right what do you mean well she's she ratchets things right like she keeps the machine going yeah exactly yep. she mm-hmm, is exactly. she is the representative of the the combine right she mm-hmm. keeps everything running exactly the funny thing is early in the book you don't really like you kind of sympathize with her i I sort of understand where she's coming from with the group therapy. I get why she would want to have a schedule, right? People that are mentally ill have a lot of trouble adjusting to big changes, right? She wants to keep the place clean. She wants everyone to take their medication for a good chunk of the first part of the book. You're kind of split as to whether she's the bad guy or the good guy, or if she's even really evil, or if it's just a whole bunch of mentally ill guys complaining that they have to do everything the way that that she she wants. Right. Right. Exactly. Okay. So, we have after this sort of a hallucination by chief Bromden about the, you know, everything being machinery. And while he has this hallucination, one of the patients gets opened up and it's all just machinery and wires. And it's basically saying how the combine sort of removes the humanity from people, right. Would maybe be the symbolism of this whole dream that he has. And he wakes up from this dream to find out that the guy he was hallucinating about actually did die during the night. Um, and then we, we have a scene where, are you guys still tracking with me yes. story-wise? Mm-hmm. So w- and then we have a scene where McMurphy is going to make his first bid at sort of getting at the nurse yeah. and, and messing with the nurse ratchet. And he says, we should open up the tub room so that we can gamble in there. Right. We, we can't. He's, he's trying to run, uh, run games of blackjack and he can't hear himself think because she's got this music going on the ward. And so he says, hey, can you turn that down? And she says, well, there's only you're only, you're only considering the acutes. There's also a whole bunch of people here who can't really hear very well and they need to hear the music. And so I have to have it up really loud. And he's like, well, I can't run a game while we're all shouting at each other. Why can't we open up this room to work on? And so he kind of pushes her and pushes her and pushes her. And it kind of gets under her skin, right? That she, there's this guy trying to get things done and he does it with the doctor and the doctor kind of says it's a good idea. And everyone eventually like it happens. And it's the first thing that she's not really in control of. And He hasn't really messed her up yet, but she's looking kind of grumpy. Yeah. And then I was going to read a section, but I think I'm thinking we're running short on time here. 30 minutes. Okay. Yeah. We're running short. It's, it's where they all have a monopoly game. It's really funny. (laughs) It's that's the game they play is monopoly. They play all kinds of things. And it's just a scene where it's kind of a scene simply there for the comedy and to show how fun, like how crazy a game can be in this place. That's one thing that I can't convey to you as easily about this book is it's hilarious. Mm. The prose is really funny. The characters are really funny. There are moments of 
sheer hilarity that I, I like laughed out loud reading the book. And then he, Randall Patrick McMurphy makes another bid to mess with the nurse when he basically votes to get the, the world series game on the television. Yep. He thinks they should, all, but she says, well, that's going to mess up our schedule. We can't really do it. And so he's like, why don't we put it to a vote? This is supposed to be a democratic kind of therapeutic community, right? So they put it to a vote and she, he doesn't get everybody because she's counting the chronics, the people who don't even know where they are, who right. are laying on beds, who have no idea what's happening around them. They count as votes. And so to get anything passed, he has to get over half. Right. Right. So, they consider Chief Bromden to be one of the votes because he's deaf and dumb and just sort of stands there. And so he he keeps on trying to get someone from the chronics to raise their hand. And finally, Chief Bromden does raise his hand. And she, But she says the meeting was closed before it happened. So she refuses to put out the television for them to watch the World Series. And in protest, he plunks himself down in front of the television and then starts narrating it sort of as if it's actually happening on the television, That's even funny. though it's not. Right. And then all of the people, all the guys join him, all the whole rest of the ward, all sort of sit down behind him and are watching the game. That's not actually happening, happening but they hear the description. It's like, is like it is happening, right? Uh, I, I can't remember. If he's actually describing it. I may be mixing in the movie there. In any case, they sit down and pretend to watch the world series. That's yep. not actually on television, right? right? I'm looking for the little section here. If I can find it, there's a monopoly game. I was going to read. Nope. Well, I, I've lost my little marker that was going to show. Anyway, at that point, the nurse loses it. Right. She starts to scream at them to stop what they are doing because they're having so much fun and they're making so much noise. And we see her finally lose control of herself and the ward. And one of the last comments is watching her scream and watching us watch the television. You couldn't really tell who was crazy, hmm. right? Is this where you lose sympathy for her? A little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's just the World Series. It's not really. A and, big... and not even right. It's just them pretending they're watching the World Series. Yeah, it's not really a big deal. And so she kind of loses it and they have a staff meeting to figure out what to do with this guy. And she says, we're going to keep him on the ward because she really actually holds all the cards. Mm -hmm. He's committed. She gets this to decide when he leaves and she knows that given enough time, she'll win, right? She doesn't have to beat him. Ever. Like the war is hers no matter how many battles he takes, right? To win this thing. And... Then the a couple days later, they go to a pool as a group of men. They have these recreational days. And so he goes and he talks to one of the lifeguards who turns out is a, a chronic on a sort of a different ward. He's a football player that got a head injury and he's been on the ward for eight years after being picked up for drunk and disorderly. Mm. And he will randomly like tackle nurses because he gets confused and thinks he's playing football. Man. And so the guy tells him like, yeah, she decides when you leave. There's no there's no end date here. You can't serve your time and go. You have to be declared sane and then you get to leave the ward. Yep. And so after McMurphy hears that and realizes that he's not really serving out a jail sentence, he's serving out a sanity sentence. Yep. He kind of chills out and lets her begin to win. And Cheswick, remember that guy who's all talk and not a whole lot of follow through yep. tries to, in the next group meeting, challenge her that she's been taking all their cigarettes because McMurphy keeps on winning them in, in, in games and she doesn't want him to win all the cigarettes on the ward and McMurphy doesn't back him up. And so he feels like he's stranded out there alone and he is not the kind of guy like McMurphy who can go up against the nurse. He instantly folds and he's taken away by some of the aides in the, in the book. And then later they return to the pool and he commits suicide by hanging on to the grate at the bottom of the pool. He yeah. felt like McMurphy was his last hope. And when McMurphy folded, he folded. Right. Right. And so 
this kind of jogs McMurphy back into play, mm. right? Especially because one of the days they, one of the following days they go out for x-rays and he sort of sees what they do with the electroshock therapy because it's in the same building. Yeah. And, and he starts to be like, how can you guys let them do this? And they're like, well, it's just part of our therapy. And that's when he finds out that many of them are there by choice. There's right. only like one other committed guy there that has to stay. And he's totally confused by this. He thought they were all there because they were forced to be there. Right. And so he realizes what kind of power he has to bring them hope and save them from this emasculating environment that they're in. And so he got, he decides to go back up against the nurse, even if it means him so, staying there longer. So and how does he bring him hope? What's the power he has? Resistance. R- yeah. The power of St- standing up to authority. You, yeah. you have not degrumped. I I'm can just tell saying, like, Oh man, great. Well, he's giving, he's giving a, a great story of like, just like rip the system and t- take it to the man and like screw society, man. Let's get out of here. Let's go like live free in our van. Uh, but, but there are bad authorities, and Nurse Ratched is a bad authority, right? Who needs uh, to be rebelled against? Yes. So there is a failure. So society has failed. But the hero is not like a degenerate who then sort of says, what we need to do is watch our sports and, and gamble. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not... I mean, if that's the hero, well, then that's, that's, that's a much more... That's a bigger problem. Anyway, I've got my thoughts. Like, we'll we'll get there. You're right. supposed to degrump until the end, and then you can grump all you want, and then I'll chat to you about your grumps. And I'm I'm I'm, I'm excited for it. I'm glad. I'm glad that there's some <laughs> some conversation oh. coming up. Okay, so she she decides to take back the tub room because she feels like she's winning over McMurphy, right? And right. he, in response, walks up to her her nice clean window at the nurses' station, puts his hand through and grabs the cigarettes and breaks the window and says, "Oh, I plum forgot it was there. It was so clean I couldn't see it," and starts to resist again. Right. Uh, he decides to start a basketball team and he's got them running up and down the halls, dribbling basketballs. And then he tries to set up a fishing trip because they're allowed to take these recreational holidays and he gets 10 people and she makes every effort to stop it from happening. She doesn't succeed. He ends up taking the doctor himself. He convinces the doctor to go as a chaperone because <laughs> he likes fishing. Right. And then he convinces some ladies of ill repute to come with him. One of them kind of bails, but he does get one lady and eventually they do leave and go on this fishing trip. And it's a hilarious bunch of scenes. The doctor catches the biggest fish out of any of them. It's it's a really funny scene, especially because they kind of hijack the boat because nobody contacted the rental agency right. like they were supposed to. That's and funny. so he, he sort of just throws everybody on the boat and they go fishing and they bring it back. And then he he has sort of a a knockdown fight with the guy after they bring the boat back and then assuages him with some beer and they have a good time. And then he shows him the really big fish and everything's okay, right? And then they go back to the the ward having done this. And he knows at this point that it's, it's not going well, right? When he gets back, he ends up in a fight with some of the aides and he gets sent up to disturbed, which is where they send you for shock treatments and lobotomies and that sort of thing. And he gets shock treatments there and then comes back and everyone's afraid that he'll be cowed by the shock treatments, but he's not, he's like, they just charged my spark plugs. I'm ready to go. (laughs) And uh, they, they gave me so much juice. I can run for days. Right. But he knows that it's not going well, and eventually he's he's never going to win over Nurse Ratchet to the, to his sanity, and so he plans for an escape and a going away party. And they have a party. He invites ladies over. One of the ladies spends some time with Billy Bibbit, who you know is ruled by his mother and has the stutter and has sort of not been allowed to come into manhood. That'll fix him. And then, hey, <laughs> hey. <laughs> well, to be fair, it doesn't, right? Isn't, it doesn't. Isn't that no. like the next scene? Yeah. Um, and then. 
they all kind of get a little too wasted. And then the next morning, instead of escaping like he was supposed to, he fell asleep on a couch. And then in the morning, he's still a little too tired to do it. And I think he wants to stay around and make sure everything goes okay. Nurse Ratchet finds out about all this stuff and is furious and then goes and finds Billy with the with Candy, the girl of ill repute <laughs> Candy and and <laughs> threatens to tell his mother yep. and sends Billy to the office of the doctor and Billy frantically cuts his own throat and commits suicide. And in fury, uh, McMurphy strangles the nurse. He decides that this is it has to end. And then they take him. They give him a lob- lobotomy. Yeah. And when, when he returns to the ward, he is no longer himself. All of the men on the ward are like, yep, that's not McMurphy. I don't know what they're trying to do. Passing off this mannequin as McMurphy, but that ain't him. He must've escaped, right? They all mm. kind of keep the narrative of McMurphy, the savior going through their minds. And then most of them opt to leave the ward, right? Her, her powers over them, especially because I guess McMurphy damaged her vocal cords are done. They no longer feel, feel cowed by her. And so most of them elect to leave. And at the very end, the narrator, this Chief Bromden fellow who McMurphy has been working on throughout the entire book to sort of bolster him back to feeling his size, right? Because he's a huge person, throws a big thing through a window and makes off for Canada and decides that he's going to live an actual life rather than in sort of the fog he's been living in this whole time. But McMurphy is left behind. Yeah. Well, actually, he before he leaves, he smothers McMurphy for a pillow because he can't see he can't stand to see McMurphy living lobotomized, just laying on a bed. That wouldn't want, that wouldn't be how McMurphy wants to live. And I'm glossing over a ton of extra content here just to give you just the general story of rebellion, but that's kind of the deal. So let's talk a couple of themes. First, uh, McMurphy as Christ figure. So he goes and you start to notice some funny things before they, (laughs) before they give him the shock treatments, he, they say they put conductant on his, on his head and they say, and he's like, ah, oh, conductant. All right. What should, do I also get a crown of thorns? Right. Mm. There's a hint there that he's a Christ figure. He receives three shock treatments, like, you know, being dead for three days and the fishing trip. If you count up the people on it, it's 12 people. Hmm. Right. So, and they and, are fishing. Yeah. Yeah. And right? his, his death is what allows freedom for people. And right? his death is what brings freedom yeah. to the ward. Yeah. Um, there's also the theme of essential human dignity, right? One of the things he, he is there to do is, stop the focus on their problems and bring them some normalcy. Yes. Some of that normalcy was gambling as Donaldson has pointed out, but some of it's just watching the world series, right? That's a basic human thing. And he just tries to return some normal human life to the ward, basketball, swimming, fishing, watching, watching the world series and, and kind of taking away this emasculation is the thing that allows them to sort of, I don't know, take charge of their own lives. Um, we also have society as oppressor and insanity being defined by the combine, which is essentially society. So one of the things that Ken Kesey, the author, learned while he was on the ward with those guys is that a lot of them were pretty normal, except for a few quirks that society just didn't seem to want to deal with. And he says, so what's so wrong with these people that they have to be locked up, right? right. Yeah, they're a little weirder than everybody else, but they're not so weird. And it's unfair that they should be, you know, shock treatmented and lobotomized and that sort of thing when really they're just on the edges of society. And so I think he tried to show that in the ward with all of these people like Bibbit just had a stutter and Harding just didn't like his wife very much and was emasculated. Right. Yeah. They're all a little weird, but the guys who were really far gone, which he did, did acknowledge were the chronics, right? They had to stay in the ward. None of them got out. They were the guys that were too far gone, but there were some guys on the edges that just had some problems. Granted, 
One of the criticisms of this novel is that it's anti-feminine, and in most ways it does seem to be. Ratchet is terrible, Bibbit is controlled by his mother, Harding is emasculated by his wife, um, and... And the only other girls are... The, the only other girls are women of ill repute, right? Mm-hmm. There aren't any good females in this story, which is a little bit rough, but... And, and they live under a matriarchy, right? I, I think he made the feminine and emasculation one of the themes. Mm-hmm. And so there, there isn't any good representation of the female in this book at all, right? Is Nothing that something is great. Keezy ever was asked about or talked about? I don't know. I haven't know. looked yeah. so far into that whole theme, but it's not just society that is removing their dignity. It is, it is women. Like mm-hmm. even Nurse Ratchet rules over the doctor because she knows he might be addicted to opiates and can suggest it and then get him fired. And so mm-hmm. she runs everything on that ward, even though there is a doctor, right? Yep. And then the other, the last thing I say before Donaldson can chime in here and tell me why everything is wrong. Tear it apart. Tear it apart. Woo woo. That's great. I, I'm, I'm excited. Don't, I'm not trying to put you down for it. Um, is like virility, right? Life should involve, and, and for Kesey, this was especially true, living on the fringes, free sexual expression, right? And wildness, right? So there should be virility, wildness, and free sexual expression in life. And that's that's definitely an element of the book, right? Ken Kesey is partially in the ward because he likes to f- express himself sexually, right? Yep. And so those things are themes I, I, I think partially brought by the author that we see play out through the 60s is this idea of freedom and virility and wildness. Okay. I mean, that is, that is the whole scene. Yeah. Thoughts. The, the, the thing that, so the feelings that I have about this book and um, I, I see this book sit as an American version and there's a bunch of British versions of a same, of, of a similar kind of, of book. Um, with similar kinds of characters. I think Brideshead Revisited is, is probably the British version I can think of, and um, also a lot of Hemingway work, works. But so the the, in, the play between Ratchet and uh, McMurphy, to me, is like another version. It's, it's the same feeling I have with William Blake. So the idea of God's stony law and then the rebellious Satan whose whole purpose in life is just to, like, um, um, express himself. And you so... Um, so it's not that, I mean, maybe Keezy, his name Keezy? Mm-hmm. Maybe Keezy wants to set um, McMurphy up as a Christ figure, but he's clearly, I, I see him as like a Blake Satan type character. He exists to point out the fact that there is the, uh, the law is in charge and the law is there to, not just to take away our freedom and turn us into conformity. So, I mean, I understand, so the problem I have is, what the author sets up as society and then what the author sets up as the solution to the problem of society. So he says what society is for is to like limit our freedoms and make us and and make us sort of fit rigidly into the system. And the noble and romantic thing that the hero should do is, you know, um, is kick against that system and try to um, go and, and have his own, his own pleasures in life because in the end we all die. So let's take our fishing trip and let's have sex with our girls and let's do our drugs and do our gambling and watch our world series. And anybody who tells us otherwise is just a jerk face. And we should sort of fight against that band, all of our merry friends together to, you know, um, uh, to, you know, tell our mothers that they can, you know, leave us alone and so then the solution is kind of this radical individualized freedom which was 
supercharged in the 1960s. And that, very American. And very point. American. But that, I mean, but that radicalized individual freedom of the 60s play that program 60 years later and and that ethos is has not been a net positive for society. Well, you end up with uh, the heroin and crack problems from the 90s. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You end up with the heroin and crack problems with the 90s. You end up with um, uh, marriages that don't last. You end up with people who don't see themselves as having any sort of duty or responsibility to their fellow citizens, but purely to like live out their own their own fantasies and they're a hero for doing so because it's society who's the problem and by fighting against the nurse ratchets we can we can sort of um you know sort of uh, play out our our heroism so that's why when i when i read the story um uh i feel like what we're so what we um yeah in in 50 years when we look back on this book we'll be like ah here's an here's someone who thought the solution was X, but it turns out that that ended up being a more a much bigger problem for American society because we have everybody think that they're RPM or everybody think that they're McMurphy. Um, uh, then you have um, sort of the uh, the dissolution of of uh, society. Um, I do, but every I think what you're saying is why I haven't had as much problem. So again, my only interaction with this is the movie, not the book. But I have fewer problems with the story because in the specifics of the story, McMurphy should have stood up to bad authority. He mm-hmm. was he was being brave and courageous while men around him were not. They mm-hmm. were being cowardly. Um, and so he set an example of standing up to that authority, ultimately overcame that authority in a way that put his life at risk. There's mm-hmm. a type of bravery there. And even this is where I don't know if I'm like, I, I think Kesey has done a bad job if he's setting up Nurse Ratched has all of society because all of society is not as micromanaging as Nurse Ratched. Do you know Correct. what I mean? No, yeah. the, the evil is the the combine, which I think would be the the thing controlling the machinery even. of society and not the individuals. I think we also have an example of someone who is a piece of society that isn't evil in the doctor. The doctor honestly wanted to help and he went on the fishing trip and he was happy to restore dignity to the people. Also opened up that room for them earlier. Yeah, so they could go gamble. He or helped play with the tub room. And so yeah. what he wanted was actual good for the the people and he was a part of society. And then there is that element of society that, that is painted as evil. And right. I think Graham would have a problem with that. And perhaps rightfully so that wants tight fisted control and to keep them subjected. Yes. Yes. Um, so, uh, McMurphy stands in for a kind of person who either, Either so society has gotten to a place where it produced McMurphy and has failed McMurphy, and now and McMurphy is sort of in in violence against that society. I, that's fair. Just like I, I always think of, um, so there's an archetype of characters in 1930s British literature. If you think of um, like Tom from The Sun Also Rises. Um, or Sebastian Brideshead revisited these sort of characters who are rich, they're aristocratic, and they're or even um, um, what's the guy's name in uh, Dorian Gray, uh, the Lord. Oh, uh, Henry, Lord Henry. Henry. So this kind of character that is um, um, sort of joyfully nihilistic in their worldview, and they've got too much money, and they've got no responsibility, and um, they have witty, uh, clever phrases, and um, and Tom and Lord Henry and Sebastian in Brideshead Revisited are all these characters who are sort of like the products of the end of an age. 
Um, and then so the, 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 the English Empire, the British Empire, you know, produced all of these virtues and then the British Empire uh, began to fall apart. And then the, the men they produced in society were these kinds of foppish, um, uh, dandy aristocrats who had more, more money than sense. And they tried to push the bounds of morality and build a little ethic about, you know, being hedonistic. Uh, Murphy to me is the American. This is the American version of that kind of of that kind of story. So the society, from what, how the author sees it, embodied in the machine, is whatever has happened to the United States or whatever happened to America in the author's mind, um, and it's and it's produ- It's not producing quality men of virtue. It is now producing um, these uh, frankly sort of selfish men yeah. like. He, McMurphy doesn't. Well, oh, the, the, you're, you're mad about McMurphy. I, I was going to comment on the other men who are in the ward. Well, that as well. You're, so the emasculated men, okay. but then also yeah. McMurphy comes in, and he he well, one he came in not to save the men, and not because right. he had some sort of noble ideals, but because he wanted to take money from them. Right. He only did he, that later when he realized. But then that they when he leave. gets there, then he realizes, oh, you know, I'm supposed to help these people, kind of, but he's but he's only helping them to be like him, which is eat, drink, tomorrow we die kind of mentality of like, let's watch the World Series and go fishing and just like, screw everybody, man. If we could just get all these guys out of this ward and put them in a bus and give them drugs, like that's real living. And it's like, no, it's not. Because in the end of that story, like you, you haven't solved any problems. You haven't improved their lives. You've, you know, it's... Um, I, I think that's... There's no... Sol- he doesn't have a vision of the good life. The vi- uh, he doesn't have a vision of, of what it means to be a man. He has a vision of like sort of um, old childhood i i think that's a little bit unfair i I see where you're coming from but but there are some things about basic human dignity that he restores the option not even the the compulsion to watch the world series if you want right to go fishing and enjoy the outdoors to play on a basketball team like to have your cigarettes when you want them right Mm -hmm. and granted like his vision of the good life is a little further than everybody else goes but he is he is pulling them from tight control into a little bit of like basic human freedom. And, and I think, I think you are right in saying that this vision doesn't end well. And I think it didn't end well for Kesey himself as a writer either. Remember the, the grand ideals of the bus trip that ended in broken relationships, sadness, arrests, and like, it wasn't good. And, and, and the Amazon documentary points that out. It didn't end well. And he feels that it was a failure too, but it doesn't necessarily fail all the men at the ward. Many of them leave right. and leave with dignity intact, including the chief Bromden who could not talk, could not acknowledge anyone, believed the world around him to be run completely by machinery. And at the end, he is headed to live in the wilderness in Canada. Like he is, he is at least restored some of his dignity and the emasculation that was there is sort of removed from him. And the method granted Probably not the best. Yeah, no, and that, I mean... M- that kind of rebellion ended poorly for McMurphy as well. Like, he ended with a lobotomy and then being smothered by a pillow. Like, right. it didn't end well. It's the vision of... So, I mean, it's... It's McMurphy. So the, the, the McMurphy rightly finds the... Sees the problem. The problem is, is that Nurse Ratchet holds uh, uh, the reins too hard yes. and has too much control and is taking away the simple, you know, the pleasures of life and, and any little yeah. rebellion is uh, paradigmatic of a greater rebellion of her losing control. Yes. Huge problem. That should not yeah. be how society is set up. Sure. But his vision of the solution is not, is this sort of subversion of, 
of, of squeaking out your little pleasures while you can. Like, that's not the solution to that problem. Granted. I don't think, is that what the end of the book is saying? So, um, whoever... Yeah, the, well, what's the... The, the guy's the, running off to Canada to, like, but live his own life. But even the other examples, the person who um, was uh, nervous about the attractiveness of his wife, he goes back to his wife, yeah. correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, they're going back to face the problems that are in their life instead of hiding from them and not really fixing anything. Which is what they're doing. They feel like They're finally rabbits, taking charge of, right? instead of men. Yes. They, they feel like... Yeah, I mean, they actually talk about themselves as rabbits. Yeah. And one of the guys to illustrate the point is like, Jeff, show them how rabbity you are. Show them your nice fur. And the guy immediately complies, right? Mm-hmm. They are subservient. Yeah. And so that little bit of... And granted, rebellion may not be the best way to to bring dignity back. But in this case, it was rebellion against an actually oppressive person, right? right? And his, his method, not great. He could have gone about doing all of that by writing his senator and getting the problem looked into. Right. And I think the other message here is not just like buck the system. It's also the people on the fringes that we put away as embarrassments also deserve human dignity. I think there is a, a definitely a piece of the message there. But Graham, I agree with you. He went about it wrong. It got him in trouble. And that ethos played out into the history of a nation is bad. And mm-hmm. I, I think we see that come to roost in the 90s, yeah. right? Though I do wonder, is this a picture of what they thought they were doing in the 60s? They were freeing people yes. from... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But So then it's almost more interesting as a historical artifact yes. in that regard to say, this is what they thought they were doing, what actually came from it. You all are pointing to the 90s. You can probably point to any cultural moment that follows the 60s. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't create the utopia that is imagined. Correct. Yeah. And I, I think that's important to remember as you're reading it. I, I'm not putting this forth as an example of good human conduct by any means. I think it's... Uh, like I said, I think it's interesting to the history of the United States yep. as this is the vision of the 60s by the man who essentially started, started it. Mm-hmm. And and to understand the ethos and where it's coming from and then to see how that works out, not only for McMurphy, but for America in general um, is is interesting. And then to bring in the notion of this wild man uh, as, as a Christ figure, is it's just interesting, right? It's, it makes for interesting thought and discussion. But I think there is something to be said about basic human dignity for the mentally ill. Remember, this is during the period where lobotomy was practiced, right? right? If somebody is causing you a problem, you just scramble their brains and no more problems. And I think he was right to protest against lobotomizing. Sure. Yes. Right? Like that's that's yeah. a problem. We should not do that to people. Yeah. When we have, I mean, there are, let's not pat ourselves in the back as modern people. There are comparable problems instead of lobotomizing you know there are pharmaceutical uh, uh solutions, sim- yeah. ph- pharmaceutical solutions that we give to restless people um right um but it's just yeah uh, so um my distaste of it is is that um uh, this is set up as he's sort of this great romantic figure kicking against mm-hmm. um a cruel society but it has created a society of everybody who thinks they're countercultural as the culture, and that has been um, a, a a fraying or a, a corrosive um, headspace, a corrosive sort of yeah. societal yes. uh, um, current, um, and um, that no one wants to admit it, or few people want to admit it. People look back in the 60s and like, ah, oh, you know, those those idealistic <laughs> 60s. What happened to that? It's like, well, what happened to that as you continued living it out in the 70s, 80s, and 90s? And Yeah, I, I think that's that's true. Maybe there's a rebellious streak in me, though. Yes. I think 
Uh, no, no, no. I think that I think very quick. Sorry, reaction. no, no, no. That was, right no. It's not that you have a rebellious streak. It's that I don't have a rebellious streak in me, which is what, yeah. what which is also like gets my fur up about. This. Yeah, like I, I owned a bus to live in for a little while and I, I don't mind living a little bit on the fringes. And I've ha- always had sort of a healthy suspicion for some of the norms of society that I don't see make sense, like having to use a box spring for your mattress. My mattress goes on the floor. The floor is enough to support my mattress. How's your back? Fine. Please buy a box spring. And one of those things that the no, box don't spring sits buy. on. Yeah. With the legs on it. You need they those don't too. Yeah. You, I, I'm you pretty sure those are to only on to avoid bugs. You also need lots of pillows on top. Yeah. yeah. Plenty yeah. of pillows. Yeah. So I don't know. I think, I think there is something to be said for enjoying those, those freedoms that are available to man. But when those yes. freedoms leak into sexual dissolution and, and addiction to substances, they are clearly misdirected, uh, right? If, if God has come to bring us life and bring it to the fullest, you can live freely and in virtue at the same time. And I think you are recognizing that his version of freedom is devoid of virtue. Yeah, and I guess those are in- inevitable. So um, the little pleasures of life slowly leaking into vice is inevitable yeah. when society is hard-fisted and is com- totally about compliance. Like the relationship between what society ought to bring to the individual and how and the individual's duty and responsibility to society is such a fragile thing yeah. that and this is kind of what I'm going to be talking about in my podcast because we're going to be analyzing a poem about this um, is such a fragile thing that uh, when it starts to go bad um, um, those things in tension begin to uh, sort of go bad against each other the 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 um, controlling side of things becomes more controlling becomes more overbearing yeah. and the freedom side of things becomes more licentious yes. and then you have um uh, and then you sort of have this like flywheel problem where it, it, it picks up steam and picks up steam and picks up steam it's a feedback loop it's right a feedback where loop. the the rebellion will become more rebellious the tight-fisted mm-hmm. will become more tight-fisted and and how will you ever get back to a sense of personal responsibility to the community and the community having trust for the individual freedom of the individual or for the freedom yeah. of the individual uh, and that thing running on trust. And, um, and I don't know, yep. but, um, but a book that sets itself up, not as, a, I don't know if it sets it. That's the thing. Does it, is it setting itself up as a solution? I don't think so. I just, but I, I imagine people reading this and being like, yes, that's what's wrong. It's society, man. I just need to, I just need to like throw off the shackles of society and run to Canada. Just like the chief at the end of the book. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think that's, it's fair. It's fair to worry that that that'll be the reaction, especially because this is what Kesey glorifies, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't think this is the kind of book that you present to just like the myth of, myth of Sisyphus. I don't think this is a book that you present or to William a high Blake. schooler or William Blake. We had right? that conversation. You, you don't give this to people who aren't ready to read it with their head screwed on straight, right? This is one of those things that could have a pretty negative influence. Um, but it does have some things to say about essential human freedom and dignity that I think are important. And but I, I, I'll, I'm like, I'm totally sympathetic with your argument, Donaldson. and I can see how played out over time this causes problems. Sure. Can we keep this conversation going in the in-between episode? Sure. Is that yeah. okay? Yeah. Uh, anything else to say before I wrap up? Oh, that's good. Cool. Thank you all for joining us. If you want to listen to our in-between episodes, you can find those on Patreon, patreon.com slash classical stuff. You can also find bonus episodes, which are posted weekly on Saturdays. And then also we have weekly. We get a little more real, a little more raw. So, I mean, the, those, Actually, none of that's those bonus episodes are old conference talks mostly that oh, we've given. I think I'm at the in-betweeners. No, the, they're also in-between. So you get two additional um, audio episodes every week if you are a Patreon supporter. It's great. You can find us on YouTube. Thank you to everyone who subscribed last week. We now have enough subscribers to have 
have a custom URL, so we now have that. So YouTube.com slash Kings Among Men. It feels that way. YouTube.com slash classical stuff you should know now goes to us instead of slash R three four seven whatever. So anyway, we now have a custom URL. Thank you all for subscribing. Much appreciated. Tilda. You can uh, you can I think you said Matilda, Matilda, and I'm like, that's my purgatory episode. You can email us at theguys at classicalstuff.net. You can find us online at classicalstuff.net. There are so many ways to get in touch with us. I think that is everything. Yeah, Anything else before is. we wrap up? Thanks, cool. gentlemen. Cool. That was a great discussion. It was a great discussion. Thank you all for watching, and we will see you next week. Ciao. Bye. Bye. Bye.